Well, let me read um, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, which really was the last sermon that I preached here from this chapter. And the Bible says there, For we, or because of this, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As you can see, we are back to the series of messages entitled uh, The Unsearchable Riches of Christ. And uh, the Apostle Paul, in the passage that we have been considering, has been comparing the power of God to raise Jesus Christ from the dead, raise him ascend in, in the ascension to that position at the right hand of the Father, where indeed he reigns until the end of history. He compares all that to the power of God by which he raises us from spiritual death and essentially does the same thing and ultimately brings us to that most glorious place in heaven at his side. That is really the same power, the same energy. And therefore, we are assured that we will indeed get to heaven. And so, the, the section, especially from chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 10, is one in which we're seeing our state in death, our being made alive, being raised up, and being seated with Christ in the heavenly places. A verse that I've just read to you, which is verse 10, is the conclusion to all this. And it is saying that therefore, surely, what we are today and what we will be in eternity is essentially that we are God's workmanship. We are his peace of art we are his masterpiece in other words anyone who sees us should not be seeing how clever we are anyone who sees us now and indeed in eternity should say about god wow what a great god he is now, before we go into chapter 2, verse 11 downwards, that's now dealing with basically the same wow, but this time not so much on individual Christians, but on the church collectively. How in the midst of a broken world where we are fragmented from one another, through issues to do with uh, uh, color, black, white, uh, through issues to do with tribes, all kinds of tribes that make up um, our uh, communities, through rich and poor, educated, uneducated. In the world in which the Bible is being written, we also throw in slave and free, that God should produce a single unit called the church. 
that tells all these differences into utter insignificance. Again, we should be standing back going, wow, what a great God. That's what will occupy us from verse 11 to the end of chapter 2. But before we get there, I wanted to pause and answer an objection, which is a genuine objection. And it is the way in which we have been looking at Paul's teaching from chapter 1, where we will go in a few minutes, all the way down to chapter 2 and verse 10. Doesn't this negate what is referred to as the free offer of the gospel? Doesn't this undermine evangelism? Doesn't this stop us from going to any sinner and saying to that sinner, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in him and be ye saved. Doesn't that undermine it? And as I said, it's a genuine question. First of all, asked by unbelievers when they sit and listen to you preaching the kind of truths that we've been looking at here concerning election and predestination and regeneration and so on. They, won't they be saying, and often they do, well, what's the point of me even considering this topic since you are saying that God has already chosen those whom he will save. It's also a genuine question asked especially by those who are new to the Christian faith. Because coming in, they're already Christians, they've come in, they've repented, they've believed, and so on. They, they heard you saying what they should do. You said to them, repent, believe, and so they did. And so they come in thinking, well, I have done it, and I'm in. And then they come to start hearing you saying, no, 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 actually, God is the one who did it. They ask genuine questions because there appears to be some confusion there. And then, of course, we have those that deliberately take on what is called in theological circles an Arminian position other than or in contrast to the Calvinistic position. Again, they also will say, hey, that cannot be right because God offers free will to us as human beings. We are the ones who choose him and therefore we don't agree that he chooses us or at least if he chose us, it is because he peeped into the future and noticed that we would choose him. And so he chose us, they would argue. Bottom line is that it is a question that needs to be addressed, and I thought that this was the best place to address it. And I want to address it in this way. First of all, it is by us doing a quick review of the passage that we have just been looking at, beginning with uh, verse 3 of chapter 1. 
And the point there is for us to see the obvious teaching of this whole passage. The obvious teaching that is there as it is applauding or celebrating our great salvation. How does Paul himself put it? Well, first of all, he begins with the fact that, in fact, we were chosen in Christ before the world was founded. Verse 3 and verse 4, chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And the end of this choosing is that we should be holy and blameless before him. That that's where salvation starts from. It is from eternity when God specifically chose us with the end that we would be holy and we would be justified or blameless before him. And then out of that comes this predestination to be adopted as his sons again through Jesus Christ to fulfill that same purpose of us being holy and blameless before him. We see this in verse 5. Verse 5, in love, he predestined us. In other words, he predetermined our end. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And there is this phrase we'll come across a few times, according to the purpose of his will. Okay, so he had determined through election, that this is the way we're going to be. And then he predetermined that end again through Jesus Christ. That's the Father. And then he brought us to Christ, that Christ would buy us, that he would purchase us. Or to borrow the term here, which is exactly the same word, that he would redeem us, buy us back to God from sin and death. And we see this all the way from verse 7 down to verse 11. We won't read the whole of it, but at least sections of it. Um, verse 7 says, in him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Notice, we, we have it. It is not, we might have it if we choose it. No, we, we have redemption. We have been redeemed. We have therefore this, the forgiveness of our trespasses, and it is based on the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. Now I want you to notice this according to his purpose coming up again. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, and there it is, according to his purpose. In other words, it is according to plan. He had planned it. 
and in due season Christ purchased us through his blood when he died on the cross. And as popular as it might be to think that Jesus paid for the whole of the human race so that they don't go to hell but instead come to heaven, the Bible teaches instead particular redemption that in fact he purchased his people with his blood. And then verse 11 speaks again about how we come into that inheritance and it is through him and it is according to plan. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, there it is again, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So we come into this experience of our salvation according to plan. In time, somewhere in time, God catches up with us, brings us in, and he does so according to him who works the whole of history according to his purpose, according to the counsel of his own will. So again, you can't miss. That's what Paul is actually teaching. Although it's raising questions, and rightly so, still that's what he is teaching. And further, the section that we're dealing with, after the Apostle Paul says, you believers need to be aware, you need to grow in your appreciation of the hope that you have and also of the power of God at work in you. Basically, Paul again does the same thing. He says that salvation finds us dead, spiritually dead. We saw that in chapter 2, verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3. That salvation finds us as we are under the wrath of God. That God's righteous judgment is that which we deserve that ought to sink us deeper than the grave into the flames of hell. And the only reason why we are not there and instead we are enjoying his salvation is but God at the beginning of verse 4. But God. That's the only reason. That's the difference. But God. Why? He is rich in mercy. He is rich in love. He is rich in grace. He is rich in his kindness towards us. Those are the words that Paul is using in the rest of this passage of scripture. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. In other words, rich in love. And then he says there at the end of verse 5, by grace you have been saved. In other words, again, who is rich in grace, he's done all this. And then at the, towards the end of verse 7, he says, to show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness 
towards us in Christ Jesus. In other words, it's, it's God acting out of his own rich love towards us. It's him acting. And that's why we find ourselves saved today. And hence, again, we are back to our text that anybody looking at us will be able to say, wow, what great things God has done. I cannot imagine that anybody can miss this point. That this is the plain teaching that is there in the text. As much as we may have difficulties, bottom line still is, this is the plain teaching of this text. In other words, if we deny that, we might as well tear these two pages out of our Bibles and throw them away. We, we can't read them and then say, no, this is not what it is teaching. Then what on earth is it teaching? So that's the plain teaching. And any honest person should at least admit that much. Having seen this plain teaching of the Bible, we then should ask, doesn't that negate human responsibility? Doesn't it? Generally speaking, if you start teaching that God has planned all of these things, then what's our role? Before we come to negating the free offer of salvation, I think it's important that we quickly process that first question. And it's by simply saying this, that life, the whole of human life, has two sides to it. The whole of human life, it has the side of God's sovereignty, and it also has the side of human responsibility. Both of them are true about human life and living. One does not negate the other. God reveals in his word the two sides of human life so that we can be enriched in our understanding of life and also in our worship of God. That's the reason why he reveals both of them. So on one side, with respect to God's sovereignty, it causes us to be true worshipers of God when we realize that he is all and in all. And it keeps us humble, especially in the midst of our achievements, because we know that without him, we are nothing and can achieve nothing. But then on the other side, the, he, the Bible clearly reveals human responsibility in order for us to be exerting ourselves to achieve that which we know we ought to achieve. We exert ourselves. And that again is human life and living. Let me quickly give two examples in the Bible, both of them in the Old Testament in order for us to appreciate this. Uh, one is the example of Pharaoh, and the second is the example of Joseph. Now, strictly speaking, I ought to begin with Joseph, because it's in Genesis, and then move on to 
Pharaoh because of the fact that he is uh, in the book of Exodus. But I'm turning it around simply because it just gives us a good ending to the story. So let's begin with Pharaoh. Okay? Pharaoh, as an individual, as we know, did not want to let the people of Israel go. We know that. God had to use various means in order to finally break that stubborn will. We all know that, isn't it? Ten plagues, one after the other, in order to finally make Pharaoh give up. However, when we read Exodus, let's quickly turn there, and chapter 4, God was speaking to Moses about what was about to happen. Exodus chapter 4 and verse 21. Exodus 4 and verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. Now listen to this. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now, that's the side of God's sovereignty. God is saying, go and do these miracles, and as you are doing them, I will be hardening his heart. Well, when we go to chapter 7 and verse 14, this is what we read. Chapter 7, verse 14 then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Now, because it is being spoken in uh, such a way that we are not told who's doing the hardening there, we can easily say, okay, it's simply stating it as a matter of fact. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And as you read through these chapters, every so often, that's the way it is put. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And you ask, okay, is it God hardening his heart? Or is it him deliberately hardening his own heart? By the time you get to chapter 8 and verse 15, we read, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So you begin to see that actually Pharaoh was hardening his heart. And all I'll do is encourage you to read all the ten plagues and you will notice that whoever was writing this account, which is meant to be Moses, he, he, he was just going from God's sovereignty, human responsibility, God's sovereignty, human responsibility, willy-nilly, just like that. And to him, he did not see that there is some apparent contradiction that is going to happen by speaking this way. He was showing us the two sides of this coin of truth. Never in the same sentence. Never. Sometimes 
he would say, God hardened his heart. Sometimes he would simply say, Pharaoh's heart was hardened or stubborn. And then sometimes he would actually say, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Now, some people try to get out of the sticky situation by saying, well, sometimes God hardened his heart. Some other times he hardened his own heart and so on. That's not making the situation any easier. Because bottom line is the two things were historically happening and they're recorded as such. Let's quickly go to Joseph. As I said, it's earlier, but in, in Genesis 50, we, we, we find the way Joseph understood what was happening. The story is that uh, Joseph's brothers um, were jealous. Jealous because Joseph was a favorite in, the, in his father's household um, of the, the 12 sons of Jacob. Joseph uh, was also claiming that one day his brothers would bow to him. In fact, even said, even mom and dad would bow to me. And that just, yeah, it drove them up the wall. And as a result, one day when they saw him, they decided, guys, let's just get rid of this dreamer. Let's kill him. We know the story. In the end, one of the brothers managed to convince them that, let's just sell him as a slave. And off he was sold as a slave. Um, and he, the first home he, he was sold to, the, the, the wife to uh, um, Potiphar claimed that he tried to rape her. All false. Uh, it's very difficult to convince the master that his wife was doing something wrong, so he's locked up uh, in the cells. Um, and even while he's there, he's, uh, he's, he, he does a favor to two individuals um, by telling them the truth. Uh, Pharaoh's cupbearer and Pharaoh's baker. Well, sadly, the baker, the truth was that he was going to die. But Pharaoh's cupbearer was that he was going to be restored. And um, he also says, please, the day this is fulfilled, remember me before Pharaoh. The guy surely gets out of prison, is restored. I guess he's too happy to remember uh, his fellow prisoner. And so for a number of years, continues that way. Until finally Pharaoh has a dream. And then according to that dream, um, it's going to be seven terrible years, or good years, and then seven uh, bad years. Uh, but nobody could interpret the dream. Then this cupbearer remembered that Joseph had interpreted his dream correctly, including the baker's dream. So that's how he comes out of prison. For your own information, between the day that Joseph is sold as a slave to the day that he comes out of prison, there's 22 solid years, 22 years. He's gone from being a young man in his late teens to being in his mid-thirties. That's where he has reached. Uh, now he's a bearded man. 
he has not met his family for years. And then they show up, needing his help. Now, you and me, we know that if people make us suffer for five years, not even 10 years, let alone 20 or 22, just five years, and then they show up, maybe they are looking for employment, and you are in charge of that panel. The moment they see you, they understand why they don't get the job. Well, in Joseph's case, he not only gave them what they wanted, he also brought them and gave them the best land in Egypt, and they were able to thrive. When their father died, they assumed that uh, this was now going to be an occasion for Joseph to take revenge, and this is where I want us to go. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers, that is Genesis 50, verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. They knew this is normal human nature. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, the first part was an obvious lie, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. So, obviously, that if, if, if Jacob had wanted to do that, he would have said it himself. Okay, to, to Joseph. He had a, uh, a farewell speech uh, that he gave to him. But anyway, this is what they now say. Basically, they apologize. And now, Please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. We are told here, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. It broke his heart that, th that they would even think that he would be wanting to, to hurt them, to damage them, to, to destroy them, that, that he was entertaining hatred within his own heart. To see them in that condition broke his heart. He wept. And then we are told his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. My interest is in verse 20, but let's begin with verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? In other words, there is a role that God himself plays in all this, and I'm not in that shoes. I'm not in those shoes. Then he explains. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. In other words, when you were planning what happened in my life, you planned it with malicious intent. You wanted to destroy me. I've got no doubt about that. But there were two planners for that same action. Two planners. Yourselves and God. And this is the way he puts it there. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 
So there are two actors here. As this thing was unfolding, there were two wheels. There was the sovereignty of God and there was human responsibility. You were responsible for what you did. But I'm not concentrating on that. I'm concentrating on the other one. God, whose will is supreme. He also planned this. From eternity past, he planned it. My 22 years as a slave, and most of it in prison, he planned it. Because of the final outcome. The saving of many lives. So, that's life generally. And if we can grasp those two things, as I said, on one hand, it will keep you humble. On the other, like Joseph, it will keep you from, from, from being on a war path for the rest of your life. You must revenge. You must, you must eat back and so on. But you will recognize God allowed it for a purpose. In fact, he's the primary planner. He must know what he's doing. He's my heavenly father. And that's why God shares the two sides to us in the Bible so that we may learn to view life situations from two sides. We are responsible for our actions. We are. And if we've done wrong, we must apologize. We must repent. We've done wrong. You can't be saying, well, you know, God's sovereign. He, he planned it, therefore I shouldn't apologize. No! You did wrong. You must face up to it. But on the other, it enables us to worship the true God, especially when wrong is done to us. God has a purpose. So let me really then apply it to the area now of um, salvation. To the free offer of the gospel. Basically, the argument tends to be, since God has chosen and predestined, why offer the gospel to everyone? Why? Well, the answer is quite simple. It's this. Prior to conversion, we don't know who the elect are. We don't know. Until a person is already in the kingdom, that's when we can say, ah, so you were of God's elect. We've got absolutely no idea, and therefore we share the gospel with everybody. We speak in terms of whosoever will, let him come. We speak to everyone saying, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the good news of this redemption offered through the person and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We share that with everybody. And also remember, the gospel is actually the means that the Holy Spirit uses in the work of regeneration. 
He uses this same gospel to give life to the dead. We, we, I don't have time to take you to it, but if you look at James 1 and uh, uh, 1 Peter 1, both of them point that out, that he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Through the word of truth, he regenerates his elect. And therefore, it is our responsibility to share the gospel. It's our responsibility. That's the means that God uses to call out his elect. That's from our side as those who are sharing, giving the free offer of, of the gospel. We, we should do it readily, freely, knowing it's the means in the hands of God to give life to the dead. But there's the other side, and it is the side of uh, the, the sinner, because often the sinner also uses that as an excuse, and the excuse is something like this. Why should I bother to even consider your message? Uh, what if I'm not chosen? Hmm? So why should I even bother about it? After all, if he chose me, I'll still be saved. So why, why should I even be bothered? May I suggest to you that that's a lame excuse. It's because of the same sinful heart. Because remember what I said. This principle is not just in salvation. It is in all the other areas of life. For instance, to do with exams, we all sit exams, and some of us fail. Others pass. Actually, God predestined, before even time began, who would fail and who would pass. He's not sitting there together with you, biting his nails, wondering, yeah, will they pass? Will they? No, it's already decreed. But who among you says, I won't study? After all, he's already chosen those who pass. Why should I be bothered? Let's also say the same about medical treatment. God has already determined when you die. Eh? He has. And you will never live one minute after what he determined. Never. As we are all sitting here, he actually knows whether this is your last day. And he determined it. He didn't just know it. He determined the boundary of your life. And as Jesus himself says, by worrying, you're not going to add or subtract to it. So, when you fall sick, do you say, why bother? Why should I take medicine? Eh? Why get admitted in hospital? Why? After all, he's decided when I'll die. Eh? 
He's already determined. So, if he doesn't want me to die, I won't die. Which of you does that? I mean, some of us, just a small headache, we're already rushing to the doctors. One more example, still like talking about death. When we are undertaking a long trip with our cars, we make sure that they are in the best condition possible. Which of us says, why should I bother? I mean, God, if God wants me to die in this trip, I'll die. So I'm just drive half asleep. After all, if he doesn't want me to die, the vehicles will be the ones going into the ditches. Me, I'll just still survive. No. We make sure we sleep in good enough time, have enough hours of sleep. We make sure our vehicles are in the best possible condition. We make sure that the only one driving is the best person to drive. And so we do all those things. Despite the fact that if he had decreed that this would be our last journey. That would be our last journey. In other words, in the rest of the areas of life, we don't say, well, since God is sovereign and has decreed all these things, therefore I will be irresponsible. We don't do that. We do what we know we ought to do. Let's take that further. Ladies, God has already decreed who will marry you. He already. Hmm? So, no need to spend all those hours in front of the mirror. <laughs> eh? Sitting in that oven for hours. You know, that oven you sit in. No need. After all, he's already decreed. Hey! The ladies are going like this. Rightly so. Because there is human responsibility. You can't be looking like, you know, you've survived a car accident for the next number of years and think Mr. Wright is, you know, just going to overlook all these other beauties and come after you. You do your even if it was announced that next Sunday, hmm, all of you are single here, next Sunday, the king of Wakanda <laughs> is coming here <laughs> to collect his wife-to-be. Hmm, and that he has already chosen. He's already chosen now. He's coming. You are not going to come this Sunday looking like you know, Namangu in your eyes and everything. No! I'm pretty sure this week you will be making sure if you've never had the best of dresses, you're going to buy that best of dresses and come looking like traffic lights. Green, red, and orange all over. And wherever it is you'll be sitting, you want to at least be appearing close by, you know? So that you can see. This 
the fact that you've been told he's already chosen. You're thinking, who knows? Maybe me. Who knows? So why is it that now with respect to your soul, the well-being of your soul, and you've been told, repent, believe. This is the way in which you get saved. You should not be saying, after all, he's chosen. So why should I? It's obviously your own sinful nature. Bottom line is that sin is rebellion. Sin will find any excuse to still hang on to the ways of wickedness. And the moment you are taught God's sovereignty and human responsibility, you even overlook human responsibility now. You start using God's sovereignty against God. The very reason why you ought to burn in hell. Because God will show you that in every other area, you were not using that logic. But when it comes to your salvation, that's where you start wanting to use it. Friends, the objection, does this negate the gospel offer? Is no objection at all. In the light of what we've just said, it does not. You are dead, yes, but you are not deaf. You are hearing the words of the gospel that are speaking about the death of Christ, that are speaking about the person of Christ, that are speaking about God's demand upon you to repent and believe. You are hearing all that as the means by which you receive the full benefit of what Jesus Christ has done. And as Charles Wesley, who himself was an Armenian, would say, he speaks, and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. At least he knew regeneration precedes conversion. He knew that. He speaks, and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. The final statement I'd like to make is this. The final objection is, yeah, but those people who are preparing exams and beautifying themselves and preparing for tri trips are alive. Me, I'm dead. In other words, I'm powerless. This is something I cannot do. The answer is pretty simple, and it is this. He's not asking you about your ability to do it. He's asking you to do it in obedience to him. That's it. In obedience to him. He gives the ability. We have many examples of this in the Bible. One of them is that man with a withered hand. And Jesus said to him, stretch out your hand. Now come on, it's withered. How do I stretch this? With that. Well, what the Bible says is the man stretched out his hand and was healed. What did he do? He heard what Jesus said. 
and obeyed. The ability was an act of Jesus himself. One final example, and it settles it, is a dead man, Lazarus. <laughs> He's actually dead. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. The dead man came forth. He wasn't concentrating on have I got ability? Have I not got... He's dead! Dead people cannot be processing those thoughts. He heard the voice and obeyed the voice. And consequently, he walked out of that tomb. Friends, we must concentrate on our responsibility. The appeal of the gospel is quite simple. Come to the Savior. Make no delay. Hear in his word. He has shown you the way. That's the message to you. You don't start now. You know, have I got ability? You know, have I... No, the message is clear. Come to the Savior. That's your responsibility. Now, when you have come to the Savior and you are on the inside... He will then say to you, actually, there is a whole world of information behind what happened so that you can worship me appropriately. But while you're on the outside, there's a very clear message to you. Repent, believe, come to the Savior. Amen.